Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share his love. So, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt. Not that that's the important part of this piece, but uh, good morning. Uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, welcome to Sunday here on this is the second Sunday of Advent. Numbers are not my strong suit, but I believe this is the second one. Am I correct in that? And I guess I just wanted to open by saying, I think that there really are uh, two different kinds of people in this world. And uh, so some of you are going to be like me, and you're going to have this love for Christmas, this like this thing that dwells inside of your heart where it's Christmas every day of the year. And so like when you hear Christmas songs during the year, you're like, yes. Like, I want that. That's me. And then some of you are going to be more like my wife, who uh, owns a, a black Christmas hat. And this black Christmas hat has the writing, Bah Humbug, across the front of it. It's like really like she's been possessed by the spirit of anti-Christmas or something like that. But I mean, you know, that's okay. Like, we're all in different places spiritually, right? We all come to this different and like... You know, it'd be unreasonable of me to expect that everyone would have the same level of Christmas cheer. And uh, so we'll just work on that. And, you know, we'll hope that the, the spirit of Christmas will slowly transform us to be more Christmas-loving people. Um, but uh, as we think about Christmas, because this is not really <laughs> about uh, loving Christmas, there's, there's so many things we think about. And some of that are hymns and songs that are so, like, core to what we do uh, when Christmas comes around, and as it comes around every year. And there's uh, some of these songs, like, I mean, some of them I love, right? So Taylor Swift has a song, has a couple of really good renditions. I'm not going to sing it for you. But, and that's really great. But some of these songs are not really worth looking into. There isn't as much theological depth as some others. So you look at, uh, there's definitely hymns and songs that we sing at this time of year that have a lot of uh, depth to them and that are substantial uh, and that are, are rooted in Scripture and rooted in a story that is ancient and old and rooted in traditions that we are mostly um, unconnected with or maybe at least we just don't realize. And, and so often we hear these songs, right? And we hear them over and over again so often that we start to lose touch with these songs. There's this funny thing that happens when you repeat one word over and over and over again. You start to realize that language is this funny thing where we make sounds and it represents something. But that word starts to lose its meaning. And I think that you see this, if you've been around church a long time, I think that you see this in church circles. Uh, you know, when we don't take the time to remind each other of why we do things. So if we don't remind each other of why we do things like baptisms, and we just use the word, or if we don't take the time to remind each other of why we do communion and the reason behind that, uh, or if we just assume that everybody knows the meaning of words like propitiation, that, that if, we, if we do that and we just repeat these words over and over again, they kind of lose their meaning or they don't lose their meaning, but at least in our minds, they do. And this can also happen with some of these great and these memorable hymns that happen, you know, as they come year after year after year. And, and so maybe what's happening when we do that is we sing them so many times that we stop thinking about them. You know, they become burned on our minds as Christmas songs. And, and so because you know them so well, you can just sing them and think about something else. And you can start to lose touch with what these songs are really about and what they're saying. And so for this series, 
uh, what we really wanted to do is we wanted to look closer at one of these famous hymns written by a guy, a guy named Charles Wesley. And we just want to break it down. We want to ask the questions of, okay, well, what is really being said when we sing this? Um, what are we really singing over each other? Um, what are we singing over this holiday time? What is it that we're proclaiming? What is it that we're proclaiming to one another when we sing this? And, uh, and then through that, we want to explore some of the core biblical themes that are, that are found in that. And so we kind of want to use that as a gateway to go like, okay, well, what, where does this come from? What is this about? And so during this Advent season, this is what we want to do. And, and when you reach the biblical themes, that's where the questions change, right? And it starts to become, okay, well, what is God calling us into in this season? Is there something new that God is saying to me? Um, is there something beautiful that he's continuing to call me into? Or maybe that he's calling me into for the first time? And so we're going to look at this hymn, uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And uh, we're going to start to see this powerful overlapping of scriptural themes. And we're going to see this quilt of themes knit together in this theological blanket. And so I just want to give an invitation just at the outset here. I want to say uh, maybe you're here and you don't follow Jesus and you haven't reached that point. I want to say welcome, just like Jake has been saying, welcome, please be here with us. Uh, yeah, we, we want you to be here with us. That's, that's amazing, please. Um, and I want to say the invitation, if you're in that place, or if you're in a place where you haven't decided to follow Jesus, then the invitation here is, well, let's dig into the meaning of these beautiful and these historic song, songs. Let's not leave them in the past, but let's like transcribe them to the present. And let's ask the question, does this story map onto my experience? Um, do I feel or do I sense resonance here? Is there a voice that I hear calling my name as I hear this story? Is this story, could it be more than just simply an old story? Could it be something bigger? And so this is an invitation just at the outset, uh, an invitation to openness and an invitation to posture ourselves in a place of inviting beauty and inviting goodness and inviting God to speak to us and to, I mean, if he's really there, like, let's, let's be open and let's be listening. And then uh, there's kind of the same invitation for those of us uh, who have heard the voice of Jesus, for those of us who have come to a place where we're like, we want to know you and, and where we've committed to following him. We have a similar invitation. Uh, do we hear a voice? Maybe there's a haunting melody that you kind of sense or you feel in the song. And it's something, maybe you hear something calling us deeper. Maybe you hear a voice calling us to something more. And we have a similar invitation to openness. So without further ado, so let's accept this invitation. I'm, I'm kind of in this along with you guys. And let's dive into this piece of poetry that's going to tell us of something old and powerful. It's going to tell us about something older than our country. Our country is not very old. It's going to tell us about something that saw the fall of the Roman Empire. That's a little bit older. And it's going to tell us about something that if what it's, what it's talking about is true, something that stands apart from the ravages of time and something that with each passing century seems to speak louder and louder. So a uh, little bit of history just quickly. So this uh, hymn is written by Charles Wesley. It was written in 1739. It was then put to music about 100 years later. Um, and while that's the actual writing of the hymn, what it's talking about is, is deeper and older. The subject matter there is thousands of years old. 
So this is uh, stanza one. So this is what we talked about last week, right? So uh, this kind of set the stage for the coming verses. It said, according to Scripture, there's this fundamental problem with humanity. Every worldview, every person that wakes up in the morning and goes about to do something understands that there's, well, most of them anyways, understand that there's some kind of problem with the world. This is what Scripture says is wrong with the world. It says that we are separated from God and that God is separated from us and that we are separated by our sin. And so there is this need for God and sinners to be reconciled, you see in line four. And so the context of our entire story takes place in this setting, right? So there's this fundamental divide between God and humankind. And so the story contained in this song is how God himself will come to make that right, how God will come to heal the divide, to forgive sins, to conquer death, to bring his kingdom. How God himself will reconcile, make right God and humanity. How God himself will make it possible to overcome every barrier that is placed between these two. And so this is where we get to our stanza this morning. So I'm going to start out, we're going to read through this, and then we're going to dive into the scripture behind these themes, and we're going to kind of like draw those themes out into a more clear understanding, and then talk about what it means. And uh, if, you, if you see this and you're like, oh, I want to sing it, don't worry, we'll sing it at the end. That's coming. Let's read through it first, though. It says, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And so the first text that we're going to dive into, it was already read, so I'm going to read through it relatively quickly. John 1, verses 1 to 14. So what this scripture is going to do, so watch for this, it's going to tell us about the main character in this story. It's going to answer the question of who is this Christ? So let's read through that together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the first thread in this tapestry that we want to pull on is, who is this Christ? Who is this central character here that we see in this stanza? What about him connects with this God and sinners reconciled peace? 
And so in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's this Word that exists in the beginning with God. It also is God. Uh, In some way, they're separate, but they also share divinity. So Scripture paints a picture here of being somewhere in the pre-existent eternity, there are these two characters that are also God. There's, there's kind of like, a, they're two and, and one. There's one God, but they're both divine. And then we're told some additional things about this word as we work our way through the text. Like, just in case we were confused about whether he was divine or not, we're told that he made everything. Through him, everything was made. Nothing was made without him. We're told, in him was light and life. So this is not a divine dictator who just makes rules and expect, expects us to follow him just because he says so. In him was life, the source of life. In him was the very thing that we are made for. Uh, in him is the, the way that, we, that life is meant to be lived. In him is goodness. In him is beauty. In him is love. In him is the sustaining power that upholds him, or sorry, upholds us. Uh, In him is spiritual life. In him is resurrection life. In him is eternal life. Uh, All of those we could dive further into, but the word is a source of life. It's also the true light, which gives light to everyone that was coming, sorry, that true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so it's this true life. And when that true life is put on display, he, all, he becomes also the light of all mankind. Light reveals. It shines into darkness. Light pierces the darkness. Light brings understanding. It brings knowledge. In the Word, we have this revealing of knowledge. We have this true and this ultimate self-disclosure of God to humankind coming into the world. You have God saying, this is who I am. God disclosing himself to humankind, meeting humanity in a way that we can understand, meeting humanity in a way that we can know him. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So in the stanza, we see the word incarnation, right? That's one of those words that we should probably take care to define every once in a while. It literally means the infleshing or the becoming of flesh. And in our verses here, it means that God's self-expression has become flesh. So if we're going to know God, it is going to be best done through our connection with the Word who became flesh. So Scripture says the way to know God is not through purely rationalistic process. I mean, so I talked a little while ago about reason, right, and the importance of reason and how that's a tool and how we can use that, and that's a good thing. And that is a good thing, but that is not going to take you all of the way to who God is. And it's the same, like the scripture says that it is also not through an irrational mysticism. The way that we know God primarily is through God's self-disclosure, Uh, The Word, this is the supreme revelation. The Word became flesh. He donned our humanity. He chose to make himself known to us, finally and ultimately in a real historical person. When the Word became flesh, God became human. And uh, so just one affirmation that I wanted to pull out of here, because if you're like me, sometimes you're like, wow, that was a lot of text and a lot of things. What do I do with that? So one affirmation, I think, is we can say, I will get to know Jesus 
better. And the underlying truth, the reason why I say that is because if we want to know who God is, we are to look to Jesus. He is the word become flesh. He is the fullest expression of the person of God. Hebrews is going to say he, Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. Colossians is going to say that God is invisible, but that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And I guess when I, when I hear those things, it kind of speaks to me saying, well, let's let's speak to him. Like, this is maybe what I hear on my heart, like, pursue Jesus. There's all kinds of good things that you could pursue. There's all kinds of good things that you could chase after and want. But if you want to know who God is, it makes sense to rest or to, to follow and to look for the supreme revelation, the ultimate expression of who he is. So let's speak to him. Let's draw near to him. Let's meditate on his words and his deeds. Let's focus on him. Let's uh, meet together with like-minded people in home churches. <laughs> Plug. And, but let's talk about him. Let's pursue Jesus. Um, and it's also going to say this, I think. If we want our town, if we want our family, if we want our friends to know God, the best way to do that will be to encourage them and to point them towards the person of Jesus. It's in Jesus that we come face to face with the eternal word. It's in Jesus that we come face to face with God himself. Uh, and I'll share a quote with you. I was too busy prepping my Christmas outfit, right? So I didn't put the quote up here for you. But uh, here it is. I'll read it to you. This is what E. Stanley Jones says in his book, The Christ of the Mount. He says, My words are the incarnation of, the offspring of, the son of my thought. So the word Jesus, so the word Jesus is the son of the thought, God. And as we look up through the words of a man to understand his thought, so we look up through Jesus to know what God is like. And I think we can, I think that text kind of answers this, right? Or it tells us, it informs this piece, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. So who is this character that steps into this story to begin this reconciling of God to the sinner? It's the Word. It's the creator of all, source of all light and life, the expression of God himself, the true light. The Word became flesh, and God enters the annals of history as a character as a human. And so I think you can look at this and you can say, well, uh, so what does this actually look like? Like, how does this happen? Um, what does this look like? Like, I mean, I understand the theoretical concept, but like, how does this connect to Carlton Place or like here or the world? Uh, so the second biblical text we want to dive into is uh, Matthew 1, 20 to 25. And, uh, what this piece of scripture is going to do is going to flesh out our context a little bit more. And it's going to give us a little bit more tangible details here. So here we go. Matthew 1, 20 to 25. Uh, talking about uh, Joseph. So, but after he, Joseph, had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph is a man, like some of you are. Um, Sorry, Callum, I don't think you count yet. Uh, He's also engaged to be married. And uh, this is different than the way that we understand engagement now, right? Like, uh, then engagement would pretty much have been marriage. Like, uh, you were married, you just weren't living together yet. Uh, like, if you broke off the engagement, it was the same as divorce. Uh, so this is, this is serious. Uh, this is probably more serious. This is stronger than our modern conception of engagement, right? And so one day, Joseph is talking to his fiancée, Mary, and she drops this bomb on him. And she's, she's like, Joseph, I have something to tell you. And he's like, I love you too, babe. And she's like, I'm pregnant. And then we don't know what happens. But at some point, Joseph goes home. If he's like me, there's a lot of tears involved, right? But uh, angry, sad, betrayed, uh, feeling lied to. I guess that fits into betrayed. I mean, this, this turns his life upside down, right? Uh, And Joseph decides, well, I'll I'll just divorce her quietly. And then Joseph goes to sleep at some point in there, and he has this dream, and that's what we just read. And uh, it seems like this angelic proclamation is necessary to overcome his unbelief or his incredulity. I mean, I think it would be necessary for me as well. And, and we see God kind of meet Joseph, Joseph in this crucial and this critical period of time, right? And in the end, Joseph ends up doing what the angel commands him. He, he legally adopts Jesus as his son. Uh, Joseph marries Mary. And then the word becomes flesh. Joseph names him Jesus, as the angel said. Uh, the name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. God will save. He the Word, Jesus, full of light and life, creator and sustainer of all things, the true light and the full expression of God himself, is given the title Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And uh, I, I just thought that this is one piece that I think we can pull out of here. Another affirmation would be, I will hold on to hope. And uh, the underlying truth is that God has paradigm-altering power and can and does use it. And I, w- I want to be really careful with this, right? Because I know that we're in different places, and I know that one thing that is common to our human experience is pain. Um, pain and suffering. And I, I know that we experience that differently, and I know that some of you are in places where I, I, just, can't, I just can't understand or I'm not going through the same thing. Uh, So I don't don't want to minimize that. I don't want to step on anybody's uh, pain. So don't hear condemnation in my voice. Don't hear condemnation in this text. I mean, I'm going to say that Joseph is not condemned for his unbelief or his doubt. God actually sends an angel. God meets him in the middle of that and is like, hey, this is what you should do. This is the way forward. But I do want to say that the power of our God is paradigm-altering. 
Um, Joseph, just on a personal level, Joseph's personal world is here rocked, right, with feelings of betrayal and pain and confusion and hopelessness. If you, if you like, came to Joseph this afternoon and you were like, hey, man, how's it going? And he told you and you were like, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Like, I, I don't know how he would react, but I, that might not go over well. And out of this time of confusion and hurt and uncertainty and seeming betrayal, God shakes the earth with the greatest blessing that humanity has ever known. And it's miraculous, right? The context for this story is almost unbelievable. Um, out of a time of confusion, hurt, uncertainty, God shakes the earth with the greatest blessing that humanity has known, will ever know. And into this time of confusion and into this time of pain, God completely alters the paradigm. And it turns it into one of immense joy and one of immense blessing and immense presence. And just zooming out a little bit socially, so out of the personal realm into like uh, the, the more social peace, uh, into a people of Israel burdened under this weight of sin, burdened under this weight of, of expectation and of longing, God acts in accordance with his promise. He brings a Messiah. And it's not just somebody, right? And it's not like God just like created somebody. It's like, here you go. Like I could have done this all along. Here's your, here's your Messiah. God himself steps into human history and nothing will ever be the same again. Reality warps around him as the kingdom of God breaks through into the world of flesh and blood. Mourning is turned to joy. Death will be turned to life. The king has come. The paradigm has changed. The virgin giving birth is only one of the many miracles that will come. It's not even the greatest of them. This is a foretaste of God's paradigm-altering power. And I, I think just as I reflect on that, let's hear hope um, and let's see God's action on our behalf in this. And I think that, yeah, I mean, just based on who the character of God is, I don't think that we're ever without hope. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. So where are we? So we've been introduced to the main character, right? In this story of reconciliation, this is the word himself. We've seen the word taking on flesh and being born as the human Jesus. And so we have one last scripture that we just want to dive into to kind of round out our understanding of this stanza, some of the themes in it. And that's going to be Philippians 2, 6 to 8. So let's read that. Verse 6, so talking about Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we talked about who the main character of this story is. It's the Word, right? And we've, we looked at the birth of Jesus and looked at the practical. Okay, well, what does, that actually, what does that actually look like? And an additional question that we can ask here is, well, why? Why would God do this? And Paul, that's who's writing this letter, right? He begins his description uh, by telling us about the nature of God. And he's going to start by telling us what Christ, being God, what that did not mean. Christ did not understand being God to be this thing of selfish ambition, 
Uh, being God was not something that he used to his own advantage. Uh, you may be able to think of typically what happens in our human power structures. Is wherever there's a power structure, people will rise to the top. People will be drawn to that. And they'll get there and they'll consolidate power and they'll hold on to it and they'll use it. And if you have the power, they'll use it to kind of subdue, subdue and suppress and to hold that and to lord that over people. But Jesus' being God is not something that he's grasping. It's not something that he's seizing and lording over people. The way that Christ interacts with his power is actually the very opposite of this. And the verse right before this is uh, telling the Philippians, you should have the same mindset as Jesus. So this is kind of talking about, okay, what is Jesus' mindset? Uh, Why? Christ's divinity is not something that expresses itself as he pursues his own ends. And central here is, okay, well, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? What does it mean that he made himself nothing, is what the NIV says. And that's best read, probably, as he poured himself out. And so he poured himself out by taking on the form of a slave. He poured himself out by becoming powerless. So the word God himself experiences the humiliation and the humbling of becoming a human, right? So that's already, that's already a pretty big step. Uh, and then the character of God is revealed in Jesus. He's not this acquisitive, grasping being. That Jesus comes into our world as a human is astounding. That he came not as a king, but that he came as a servant, that he came as the lowest of the low, is mind-boggling. The fact that he came to die on a cross is something beyond whatever those two descriptive words were already, right? That I don't have any more words for. So why would God do this? Why would the word become flesh? Why would Jesus be born and live and die all for the purpose of reconciling God and sinners? Jesus here shows us God's true nature, and God's nature is to pour himself out for the sake of those that he loves. God is love, and his love expresses itself in sacrifice for those that he loves. So God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The answer to the question why is, is love. And uh, just as a third affirmation, just to pull, if, I hope that's helpful. I mean, so my heart, as I'm like explaining different scriptural pieces, really, I want to hear, okay, God, what is it that you're saying to me and what is it that you want me to hear? And so what you hear, sometimes I, I, I talk, right? And I'm like, someone comes up after me and they're like, oh, that was a horrible job or a good job. They usually don't say the first one. But usually they say that was a good job. And I'm like, are you sure? And they're like, well, actually. <laughs> but usually people will say, oh, that really spoke to me when you said this. And most of the time I'm like, I don't even remember saying that. Like, I'm not sure. So I guess my heart as I'm talking is, well, I want to hear from God, and I, w- I want what it is that God is saying to you to come across. That's, that's probably the most important piece. But if uh, you're someone that this is helpful for, then I hope these affirmation pieces, these are like simplified for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can pull them out. So I'm saying, listen to what it is that God wants to tell you, but if this is a piece of it, great. But I think a, a third thing that we can pull out here is, I will pour myself out for the sake of others in love like Jesus did for me. 
And the truth underneath this is that the God that we serve is a God who poured himself out in love for us. And so we want to be like him. In love, he came. In love, he dwelt among us, wooing us, inviting us, speaking to us, meeting us. And so let's, let's do the same. Let's dwell in our community, in love, inviting our friends, inviting our neighbors, inviting our relatives, the people closest to us, inviting each other to come and to see the person of Jesus. And uh, I think that this kind of rounds out most of the themes. We could obviously, I, I enjoy talking, so we could talk more. But I think that this kind of rounds out the last major pieces. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased. He chose to do this. He wanted to do this. He loves us. Pleased as a man, with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. So that's our, that's our stanza. So last week we saw God is reconciling sinners to himself, right? He's bringing people back into relationship with himself. And then here we just ask the questions of, okay, well, who is this Christ? Well, this is God himself stepping into human history. Profound, earth-shaking. Our affirmation there was, well, I will, if this is God himself, I will get to know Jesus. Um, question number two was, well, how does he come into the world, right? And he takes on our flesh. And our affirmation there was, well, I will hold on to hope. Um, our God has paradigm-altering power. And then lastly, we asked, why would God do this? And he does this out of love for us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to be in relationship with him. And our affirmation was, well, the same way that he dwelt among us and, and wooed us and invited us, I will pour myself out for the sake of others in love, like Jesus did for me. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.